Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the big triggers for imposter syndrome is this trying new things because it's risky. And so I think one of the things that we can do is really learn to be uncomfortable and really tolerate discomfort. You know, oftentimes because we have imposter and we've been doing, we, we know how to succeed and we know how to succeed in particular veins and we know how to stay in that lane. But when we're doing the thing that we really want to do or taking that risk, it means going outside of that lane and trying on different roles and that trying on different roles and allowing ourselves to take calculated risks, to ask for help to be in situations in which we have to collaborate with people we don't know or do things that is really pushing up and, and actually actively working on your recovery from imposter syndrome is really pushing up against these rigid roles of being so successful and having mastery over something and really allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and fail. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, 
and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Dr. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. It's so nice to be here, Denise. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> yes. So we are going to be talking today about a topic that if I had to pick like the recurring theme of my life and what so many listeners talk about that holds them back, it's this bitch known as imposter syndrome. <laughs> Okay. Yes. So we're going to talk about that because you are the expert in all things imposter syndrome. But first, I want to get to know you and your story, how you got into this space. Walk us through kind of the journey. Sure. So I am a psychologist and um, I was probably dealing with imposter syndrome my whole entire life. Grew up in, you know, largely white, predominantly white environments as my parents tried to navigate their own career lives. Um, my parents didn't go to college. And my dad was working in computers at the time. And it was a burgeoning industry. And he just went where the job took him. So we went where that happened. And so it was really difficult kind of growing up in environments that did not appreciate who I was, did not want to see me for who I was. And I experienced a lot of really direct racism and um, discrimination through that time. And it made me feel very not smart, very not capable, like I wasn't good enough. And so it really started a lot of it. And even into my doctorate, I went to an Ivy League school and but yet always felt like they were about to like one step from finding me out. And even when I graduated, I remember depositing my dissertation in the, in the famous you know, Columbia Library, walking up the stairs and discovering <laughs> a mistake in my dissertation as I opened it. And feeling like I needed to like run, like run and like fix it. And, and <laughs> you know, knowing that I was up against a deadline, I wouldn't have graduated if I did that. But feeling terror probably for two or three years afterwards that they were going to discover that mistake and take my, my doctorate away. Wow. And so I've been dealing with it my whole life. And I think, you know, I tell this in my TEDx talk about the, the job that changed my whole trajectory, which is a job where, you know, not the only job I had in posture, but like the last one, I think where I was just, you know, in there and I was just being treated awfully and couldn't move. I was, I was frozen and felt like I didn't, you know, wouldn't get any other jobs, wouldn't have any other opportunities. And, you know, he said something to me that changed my life in, in at the time in a horrible way, but, <laughs> but in the end it changed it for good, which is he, he was sitting in a room full of all women, um, senior leaders, and there was music playing in the background. And he said, and somebody asked like, what is that music that's playing in the background? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And in that, yes. Oh my God. And he was like that. That's the way he was. He treated us all like we were like garbage. It was horrible. It was just an emblematic representation of how we were being treated. And I just was like, enough is enough. And I packed that weekend, I packed up all my stuff and I quit on Monday morning. And I was like, you know, I got to, I got to stop this. And, and that's, that's what brought me to the passion for imposter syndrome. That's what 
made me like write about it, made me kind of research it, kind of like engage with it because I was living it so profoundly and it was stopping me from living all my dreams. And so. Wow. That is incredible. And I think it's just, if you know that there is something more for you out there, that self-belief that it requires for you to make the scary ass decision to say, I'm going to walk away from the quote unquote stability because there's something that I meant to do. That takes some guts. So first off, Applause, <laughs> all the snaps, um, flowers to you because that that takes some some cojones, as they say. So for folks who are listening to this and can't see the video, what is your ethnic background and where did you grow up? So uh, my mom is Puerto Rican. Uh, hey. Yeah, what <laughs> and uh, my dad is Dominican and from Spain. He's he's um, his father was from the Basque country in Spain. Very cool. And where did you grow up? I, I was born in New York City, and then my parents, my, my mom immigrated here when she was like 12, and my dad was born in Brooklyn, and then uh, my dad got promoted and, and moved off to Pennsylvania. So we actually, I grew up most of my childhood in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> a little different yeah. than New York City. <laughs> yeah, and people always ask me, was it like the office? <laughs> no, it was not like the office. <laughs> And so, yeah, I grew up there in the 70s and early 80s. It was predominant. We were the only family of color. It was really a very difficult experience. And then we moved again um, when I was in high school, right in the middle of high school to New Jersey, to Princeton, New Jersey. And oh, my God. Again, <laughs> um, when I went to college to Georgia. And so it, we moved a lot. Um, wow. I see the trend like further and further away from the communities that would feel familiar, right? And yeah. that would make you feel welcome. And I think uh, as someone who grew up in Jersey, I, I think a lot of folks are surprised by how segregated the state yeah, is. It it's is. like you can literally drive like a couple blocks and it's completely different neighborhood. Yes. And the cops yeah. will police the borders and will yeah. stop cars that are not you know, that don't belong there. We had plenty of friends who stopped coming to visit us after we moved to a predominantly white town because they would literally get pulled over every single time they hit the border of our city. Yeah. And it's just like, you think about shit like that in the South, but it's everywhere, y'all. It's everywhere. And frankly, some of the worst experiences I had were in Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, and that experience in Pennsylvania and in Jersey, I, I think very similarly and then when we lived in Atlanta, we lived in Alpharetta, which is a very popular place now, but at the time it was not. It was it was very much burgeoning. And we lived on the border of Forsyth County. And Forsyth County, if you remember, the Oprah special was the was the whitest county in America oh, that had the border patrols, like literally had border patrols. And we lived on, we lived, our neighborhood was, I could see Forsyth County across from, we lived on the border of that, our whole experience. And so that we People think, oh, racism and brutal the brutality of racism is far away. It is it is not far away whatsoever. And we get reminded of that regularly, but it's it was very much a, a part of my own childhood experience. Yeah. Okay. So I imagine you didn't see a lot of folks that look like you going through this doctorate program. So what is it that fueled you to pursue something where you didn't see yourself represented? Well, interestingly enough, I was smart enough to choose a doctoral program that, that specialized in race. Ah, <laughs> so okay. I, I saw a lot of people that looked at me like me for the first time in kind of a, an elite institution, which was some of the best moments. I think when I when I think I sat on my research team for the first time and there were 20 of us and like 18 of us were, were people of color, it was mind blowing and had been in like had been at Harvard and Berkeley and and I was just like, oh, my God, you know, I just had never had that experience in my whole educational 
career. And so I had chosen that purposefully, smartly enough, because I actually got a master's degree um, in a predominantly white institution and, you know, had a really difficult time there where at one point I called out some racism, racist things that were going on. And I got completely ostracized um, for my remaining time there, which was it was really brutal. And even to the point where my recommender, who was a black woman, wrote in my recommendation that I had problems with race and that I had oh issues. God. So I ended up only getting an interview at one doctoral program, the doctoral program that was focused on race, of course. And they actually liked that about me. She you know, attempted to sabotage my entire doctoral career, but it, it was a very difficult experience. So my doctoral That's program was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, and one thing that I find, I don't know if it's ironic, but the fact that you mentioned that so many of your peers were people of color when I'm just like, are we actually the ones that need to be studying race? Because <laughs> I'm not really sure we're the ones with the problem. But that's quite interesting. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's for another episode. Okay, so let's talk about I mean, I can imagine that you, you know, you spoke about feeling imposter syndrome and all the different these different points in your life. And as you become an expert in this and you start learning about it, you realize that it's not just you. <laughs> so why is it that so many of us encounter this? And I think I may be wrong, but I think this affects women way more than men. And if that's true, why? Yeah. And so the short story of it is the reason why so many of us experience it is, is our childhood experiences and family dynamics that set us up for this. Although it's talked about as mostly being experienced by women and people of color, there's no research to date that suggests that. But what we do know is that women particularly are, are counterphobic when it comes to imposter syndrome. So they actually face the thing that they fear. So they're triggered more often for the imposter syndrome, where men tend to aim toward mastery. And so they, they avoid risks. So they are experiencing it less often. And so um, we have, as women, we have more triggers and when people of color, we have more triggers. And so we may be experiencing a greater frequency because of the amount of triggers that we're exposed to. But in terms of what gets started, it's either being seen in your family as the intelligent one or the hardworking one or the, sur or being a survivor. So one that wasn't termed as either one of those getting caught in these very narrow roles that you have to play um, where you can't show the full breadth of who you are. And then family dynamics, like being in codependent family dynamics, where you're trying to people please and show everyone that you're the good one, and you're just trying to get along, or, or um, experiences where achievement is the only thing that's valuable and, and in particular ways, you can't be seen as achieving in different ways. And um, so all of these family dynamics and early childhood, rigid early childhood roles get us started on this. I feel like you're literally describing my entire life. Um, so thank you. Thank you for calling me out. And I think a lot of folks will hear themselves reflected in what you just said. So for folks who are literally just encountering this term for the first time, they're like imposter syndrome. What the hell is that? Is that like a superhero? What is it? What can we identify as the feelings that come with imposter syndrome? Yeah. So it's the experience when you are skilled, capable, competent, expert, have all the credentials and, and expertise you need. However, you haven't internalized that. And as a result of not internalizing that, you then constantly fear that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. And in order to cover up that fear of being exposed as a fraud, you overwork or you self-sabotage in order to cover up. And so it often leads to burnout, anxiety, depression, all of these things, because we're over-functioning to usually to prove that we, we belong. Meanwhile, we belong all the time. And people often say, oh, 
you're calling someone imposter when you call, when you say they have imposter syndrome. Absolutely not. You're saying the absolute opposite. You're saying you're fantastic. You just don't believe you're fantastic um, because you haven't internalized it, but you, you are fantastic. It usually shows up for me when I know I'm doing something that I haven't done before, right? And I think it's like, there's a certain level of fear that I think most of us expect when we're doing something new, but the imposter syndrome can almost stop you, right? From actually even proceeding because you just don't even feel like you are qualified or you should even attempt to do it. Yeah. So let's talk about how can we start to identify that we may be self-sabotaging because of imposter syndrome? Like what are some of the signs? Yeah. So oftentimes what we see is a, a correlation of imposter syndrome to things like you don't ask for a salary raise or you don't never negotiate your salary or, you know, you might be up for a promotion, but you're going to wait till they actually give it to you as opposed to advocate for it. You have a dream that you want to own your own business or you do your own thing, but you never do it. You never work on it because you feel fearful that if you work on it, it could fail and then your dreams are going to collapse. And so like, Oftentimes we're not advocating for ourselves. We're not actually pursuing the things that we want and we're passionate about. We're typically looking for approval from everyone else about, are we doing the right thing? But we're generally potentially sometimes unhappy doing the right thing, the, the right in quotes. <laughs> um, and so I think it can often lead to this feeling of like, everyone thinks our lives are awesome, but mm. we're miserable. And so like, because we're pleasing other people constantly, because we're, we're just not really assured that we will be able to achieve the things we dream about achieving. Do you think that social media has an impact on imposter syndrome? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, social media, you know, one of the things that's correlated to imposter syndrome is perfectionism. And so this idea of like, you have to be perfect. And social media does a great job of making you feel very insecure about, you know, all the things you don't have, you're not doing, can't achieve. And so I think it can really exacerbate that kind of feeling of like, well, I'm not that person, so I can't do that. Or you know, I don't have X or Y or Z. So that doesn't make me capable of, of that. And so I think it really can, can exacerbate perfectionism and, and things like that. And feeling like, you know, oftentimes those of us who've succeeded have fallen down like a gajillion times and failed a gajillion times, but are, we don't necessarily broadcast our failures. Sometimes we show them, but we yeah. don't show all of them. And so people think, oh, I can never do it in that way because I, I'm going to mess up or I'm going to screw up or I've already screwed up, you know? Yeah. I, I think um, that fear of failure, especially publicly can be like so paralyzing for people. Yeah. And so how do we start to like reconcile with the fact that when we're doing scary shit, it's not going to feel comfortable. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is super scary because, you know, one of the big triggers for imposter syndrome is this trying new things because it's risky. And so I think one of the things that we can do is really learn to be uncomfortable and really tolerate discomfort. You know, oftentimes because we have imposter syndrome, we've been doing, we, we know how to succeed and we know how to succeed in particular veins and we know how to stay in that lane. But when we're doing the thing that we really want to do or taking that risk, it means going outside of that lane and trying on different roles. And that trying on different roles and allowing ourselves to take calculated risks, to ask for help, to be in situations in which we have to collaborate with people we don't know or do things, that is really pushing up and, and actually actively working on your recovery from imposter syndrome is really pushing up against these rigid roles of being so successful and having mastery over something and really allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and fail. Folks also have a hard time like asking for help because they think that somehow that's going to equate to them being incompetent or yes. somehow unqualified, right? So like, how do we get past our own shit so that we aren't like, because then I think, you know, if you're not asking for help and then you're failing, it's almost just like you're in this feedback loop. And until you're just like, wait, I need to stop and like try something new, then you can actually create the reality that you're trying to escape from. Yeah. And I think one of the ways can be the recognition that if you don't do something about this, right, you will be caught in the recursive loop, like being successful in the way that you know how to be successful, but it's making you unhappy or even even struggling to be successful in some of these things and sort of feeling like you're not good enough is just really allowing you to kind of continue to perpetuate the story of the narrative of imposter syndrome and really allowing yourself to really try to be to take risks. One of the things you point to, I think, is really important is that oftentimes when we deal with imposter syndrome, we deal with it alone. So we often think we're the only people handling it. We're not good at building community around us because we don't want anyone to see the mistakes that we made. And really learning how to build community around you is so critically important because you have people around you like mentors who can say, well, I actually think you might want to do this instead. Or people who are expert in particular things you're not, and you can ask them for help. Like having a community around you, which is part of the recovery of imposter syndrome, becomes so important in learning to trust that community and really operate within a community and not so much like an individual contributor or kind of lone wolf again. Like that's such a hard habit to break, but it's so important. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience. Like I was a lone wolf for a very long time and it was like this internalized belief that 
I, I didn't need anybody's help. But then it's just like when you're going through shit and then you don't have anybody around you because you haven't curated that community, <laughs> it's like, okay, now what? So one thing that I think has been really like a standout moment in my life is reconciling the fact that the identity that I had as you know, the oldest child, the responsible daughter, the one that doesn't take risks was completely unaligned with what I actually wanted to do, which is like quit my fucking job and start a business. But the pressure of like living up to that identity for our families, for the people who have invested so much of their, you know, dreams in us, that's hard. How do we learn to navigate that and like not let the outside pressure of what people want for us derail what we want for ourselves? It's so hard. And, and it's a process. And when you were talking, it reminded me, because I'm also an oldest child, <laughs> you know, immigrant parent, and, you know, the first person in my family to go to college and, and the first person definitely to get a doctorate. And there's a there's a, a folkloric story in my family about my grandfather and why he ran away from Spain, about the fact that he, in his family, he came from a wealthy family and everyone had a designated job they were supposed to do. And his designated job was supposed to be, he was supposed to become a doctor. And when he was about 14 or 15, he started to apprentice. And the first thing he was involved in was an amputation. And they put the leg of somebody into his arms and he passed out. Oh my God. And when he got home, his brothers, his older brothers beat him in a kind of attempt to kind of get him to recognize he had to follow the family edict about becoming a doctor. And he ran away from home. But what was interesting about my family was that then they tried to then do generations of making the doctor, you know, so then like my aunt was supposed to be the next doctor. She didn't do it. You know, then I became burdened with the idea of like that I was going to be the doctor because I always thought from the young age I would be an MD. And then I got to college and I nearly flunked out like because I could not handle the sciences and I was unhappy. And I remember telling my father it was over spring break that I was going to drop out of bio pre-med and, and change my major to English. And my father like nearly lost his mind. <laughs> um, he didn't speak to me for three months. Wow. Um, he, he just was so furious. And even after he calmed down, he still in public would introduce me and say, uh, this is my daughter. She's majoring in like history. He would always get my major wrong. And <laughs> it was really, it was really in essence, an implicit pr- like kind of pressure to like, you know, you, this is what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to carry out the legacy of the family. And, you know, at one point I just started to realize like, I can't do this. It's making me incredibly unhappy and I'm failing at it. Even if I were succeeding at it, I think I still would have been unhappy and I just want to do something else. And, and I found my passion for psychology, which I don't think my parents would have, you know, I I think my mom would have loved it, but I don't think my dad would have been that into it. He would have think, thought, what the hell is that? (laughs) He eventually adapted to it and, and, and did end up supporting it. But I started to realize that I had to do what was right for me because I was very unhappy and it wasn't doing good for anyone. And so I do think like, it's really recognizing like what's going to make you happy and, and pleasing. Eventually they usually, if they're healthy enough, they come around, but you face the resistance initially. And a part of actually overcoming imposter syndrome is breaking those roles and not being the good kid anymore. And really having to be like a bit of a renegade sometimes and, and really tolerating what that means when people are displeasing and disproving of you and are like, what are you doing with everything we invested in you? That is part of recovering from imposter syndrome mm. is really saying like, I don't need to please you. I can't please you. It's making me unhappy. I need to figure out what I need for myself. Oh, it sounds so easy, but the feelings are so oh, hard. No, please. <laughs> I went to lots of therapy to deal with that. So. <laughs> I would also yes. say therapy. Get therapy. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, please. We all need it. 
And especially if you're navigating these spaces where you are the first or you are the you yeah. are the one who's like trying to do something different, nobody's gonna get it. And that's yeah. I think that loneliness and the isolation is what makes the imposter syndrome even worse. Yes, like you mentioned. For sure. And the yeah. the kind of like um the pressure to succeed, right? The incredible pressure to succeed. You know, oftentimes when we're we're being pushed up into these conventional roles, we're kind of trying to lift up the entire family, you know, and, and trying to create a new kind of opportunity for people to come behind us. But I think you can create that in all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be in these narrow ways that were prescribed to us. You can lift up others. You can lift up yourself in ways that are unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so important. Yeah. Can you talk us through maybe some exercises that we can do to start reconciling and first identifying if we have imposter syndrome and then what we can start to do to manage it and potentially overcome? Yeah. So I think part of recognizing it is sort of thinking about sort of like, do you fall into some of these categories? So like as a checklist, like, are you somebody who overworks at work? Do you feel like you might be a fraud? Do you happen to have perfectionistic kind of tendencies? Do you overvalue others and undervalue yourself? Do you engage with moments of self-sabotage, especially if you feel like you potentially will fail? So kind of examining whether or not that's true. Some people say, oh, is imposter syndrome self-doubt? No, it is not self-doubt. It is a constellation of a bunch of different experiences that when you identify with it, you identify with it. It's like, okay, it's not just this. It's this, 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 and this, and I have all of them. And I think part of dealing with it is sort of what we talked about a little earlier about identifying like what were your early childhood experiences that led you here? And the reason why we do that is not because we want to blame anyone or like call people out. It's really because we want to identify those early experiences and how they connect to your current day triggers. And so identifying your triggers becomes so important to understanding like when it's going to be at its height and then how you can choose a different behavior. So for example, if a new experience or a new project or a new opportunity is a trigger for you, then you know if you're going to do something new that you have to think about the ways in which your imposter syndrome shows up. So for example, it might be self-sabotage. And so what you might have a thing that you need to do for that business. For example, you might need to develop the LLC for that business, but you keep avoiding having the conversation with the attorney or whoever. And so what it is, is now structuring that experience. So what is the first thing I need to do? I need to find an attorney. So you kind of break it out into little pieces instead of one gigantic thing of starting an LLC. So in that way, it prevents the, the procrastination and followed by sort of either the collapse of not doing the thing you want to, or the over-functioning to get it done right before something important happens. And so I think it's really, it's really kind of identifying the pieces of it and then building up the particular skills around changing it. And I think, like you said before, it's a lot of being uncomfortable. And really, I think the, uncom- the discomfort is indicating you're going to a healthier place, <laughs> like being uncomfortable and trying the new things, being uncomfortable and being highly visible, being uncomfortable and taking a risk that you wouldn't take ordinarily and then tolerating the discomfort and knowing it's not going to always feel like this. Yeah, I love those tips. And it reminds me of the thing (laughs) that triggers me still to this day is like being asked to speak in Spanish, like in front of a camera. Like I'm fine talking to my family. Like it's not an issue. But then it's just like when I know people are watching me, it's like so freaking stressful. And so I have realized, you know, when I'm asked to do Spanish language, anything, first of all, I need to block out the whole day. Like, I cannot use any mental bandwidth for anything else within like 24 hours of this happening. I need to have the 
all the questions given to me ahead of time so that I can go and think about what I want to say and translate it and make sure it's good. And I just know like that's how I have to manage because otherwise I'm going to say no. And then by me saying no, it's like I'm cutting off an opportunity that is literally just rooted in my insecurities around this because that's I, I know I can freaking do it, but yeah. it's just like the attention is yeah. and terrifying. Denise, I would challenge you that eventually <laughs> I want you to kind of do it without prep. You know, I, and, yeah, and that's where I want to get to. And let it be because what 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 happens is the, that's like our imposter room showing up where we're over functioning and over preparing <laughs> to make sure that it's perfect. Yeah. And I bet it's come from somewhere, right? Like I have the same kinds of trepidations about speaking in Spanish. And I've taken all kinds of like classes and, and every time it's like, you, you speak Spanish and you have Spanish skills, like a poet, like there's so, because I've taken a thousand <laughs> classes in it, but put me on the spot and I fall apart. Yes. Um, but it comes from, for me, it comes from the, sp- the space that when I was a kid and I tried to speak Spanish, people will make fun of me, say I sound like a gringa, like say that this is what happens when you grow up in these neighborhoods. And like, and I had never felt good enough. And I felt like my Spanish was always like a mess. Yeah, And so as a result, I always now the imposter syndrome will show up in the sense that I feel like I'm going to come off like a mess and an embarrassment. And, and so really kind of also for me, it's been about like defeating that thought about like, you know, my Spanish was a mess. Frankly, I should have been applauded. I grew up speaking English. You know, and I learned Spanish because my parents were speaking Spanish to try to not let me listen into conversations. So I wasn't formally taught. And, and then I picked it up. So I should, you know, I think allowing ourselves to be proud of the things that we can do and, and really not necessarily looking for that perfection and really appreciating our own narratives and stories and, and not necessarily trying to be somebody that people want us to be, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's perfect Spanish speaker or whatever it may be. But I think really violating that and being like, it's going to be what it's going to be, you know, like, <laughs> you're getting the like Puerto Rican Spanglish. Spanglish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. With it. Yes, I really. And you know, it's funny because I feel like the more I prep, the more I like get worked up into a place where the crap that comes out is just like terrible. And I'm like, why didn't I just like fucking wing this? Because it probably would have been better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's very true. That's like when I, when I was caught in my throes of mine, it was like public speaking in English and I would over prep and I would have like a script. And so if I screwed the script up, forget it. I was lost. I was like a mess. I was starting to sweat. And I think it's really like, I let go of the script now. I screw up. I like stutter all the time. I like lose my track of train of thought. I'm just like, this is what it's going to be. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're here now. Um, and yeah. I think I like myself better in that condition than the perfect me. It's, my perfect me is not fun. I'm not happy in her, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Okay. You make me feel so much better. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, when we try to think about like what the root of the imposter syndrome, and I, th- I think a lot of it is like, the lack of self-esteem and the lack of confidence. And those are things that are shaped by our childhood. And do you think that we can be proactive in like reshaping our self-esteem and our self-confidence and how can we do that? Yeah. Hell yeah. And I've seen it, you know, through the, like my, my book is really focused on the skills related to that. And what's really, I think, critical about the book is it's research backed like interventions and so I, what I've seen is actually being able to shift it pretty radically, pretty quickly. And I do think it really does take really understanding all the different components. And you were sort of referring to this experience of not internalizing wins or successes or not being able to kind of take that in. And one of the things that we often see is that in our childhoods, our success was like, okay, great. Now what's next? And then we never got to really appreciate the success and the hard work it took to get to that moment. We were just moved to the next moment. 
And so I think really learning how to pause and appreciate every little win, every little success, every little celebration. It's, it's the thing I love about your in- Instagram is that you're celebrating every win very publicly. And I think it's such a great model for the, we often are hiding these things. We have a win and it's like, well, it's not big enough. It's not this, it's not that. And then we don't celebrate it. And then we don't internalize it. And that affects our self-esteem because we feel like, oh, I'm just doing this because I'm working so hard as opposed to I'm doing this because I'm skilled, I'm competent, I have the credentials, I've worked hard at this. That's what we need to do to kind of be able to really truly believe in, in our skills that they will take us where we can, where we're afraid of. I think it also helps to like zoom out Right. Because when we're consistently working on goals and just like meeting all the things on the checklist, it can feel like we're not actually making progress if we mm-hmm. don't step back and reflect on how freaking far we've come yes. from when we started. Yep. That I helps agree. me a lot. Yeah. Because I think we are so sometimes caught in a rat race and like what a, you know, the hustle, the grind hustle that we often forget, like, look what, look what we've come from, look what we've done and really being able to appreciate that. And there's nothing, I think oftentimes people fear, like if I do that, I'll become lazy or demotivated. If I appreciate myself, I've never seen it. I've never seen someone become lazy or demotivated by appreciating themselves. I've never seen it. (laughs) I love that. And I definitely resonated with you talking about like being someone who doesn't celebrate their wins because for a long time. And I think a lot of this is internalized, like culture wise, right? It's just like, you know, don't seek attention. Don't stand out of the crowd. It's like a lot of the messaging that we get. Exactly. Exactly. And so I've really been like deliberate in not jumping to the next thing and savoring the moment because it's, it's like, if you don't celebrate like how far you've come, you will never enjoy where you're going. And I think that's also something that really is very emblematic of imposter syndrome is that there's always a next thing. There's always a next hurdle. And the next thing I'll feel confident. The next thing. No, if you don't stop and you don't appreciate who you are in this moment, the next thing is not going to fix anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. So what would you say to someone who is in that self-sabotaging cycle right now and is desperate to get out, but is just overwhelmed with what they can do today to stop the cycle. In a super concrete way, one of the things that I've seen really be helpful is a task management process. And so oftentimes it's because we feel like they're, where do I get started? I have a, a hundred things I could start at once. It's like really learning how to task manage. And one of my favorite task management tools is the Pomodoro method. And it was built and created for people with ADD. And, but I find it to be really helpful for anyone who's struggling to focus their attention where it's just like, what it is, is teaching you how to prioritize tasks and then figuring out how to concentrate on those tasks in blocks of time that for them, it's 25 minute blocks of time with breaks in between. And what I like about it is it's teaching you to be singly focused on one thing at a time, which is really hard for us when we're feeling anxious about task management, but really important. And I think really also allowing us to understand that we do need to prioritize our, our lists and how we get them done. You can't do everything at once. You have to make a priority. And it means some things don't get done and learning how to tolerate that. So I would say that. And I would say the other thing that leads off into self-sabotage is performance anxiety. One of my favorite tools of managing performance anxiety is things like meditation and mindfulness and really getting into really healthy practices around a mindfulness and, and meditation. And so that can really be helpful. Yes. I think we need to stop thinking that our minds are their own thing, their own entity, and they're not controllable, right? It's like, this is a part of you, y'all. And just like you would exercise a muscle that you want to get strong, you have to treat your mind the same way. You have to 
treat it the same way that you would any other physical goal that you have. Because honestly, like I've realized that one of my bad habits is thinking that I don't need breaks because we just need to get shit done. And it's like, then I'm fucking exhausted. And it's like, wait a minute, I am using this muscle too much right now. And I need to stop. (laughs) And the research shows you're, you are more, you are less productive over time when you don't take the breaks. So even though we feel like we're killing it and we're being so productive, we're actually dropping in productivity, the less breaks that we take. And so it is really also like taking care of that brain, even in the resting of the brain and the taking care of the brain, like it it deserves to be taken care of. It's getting you through life. It deserves a moment to itself. (laughs) Take that PTO, y'all. You heard it here. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Lisa, this has been amazing. I want folks to find out so much more about you, how they can connect with you and all the ways that you help folks overcome imposter syndrome. So tell us where we can find you. Sure. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Orbe Austin, Twitter as well at Dr. Orbe Austin. And um, I'm on LinkedIn. I actually today, actually today I got named uh, LinkedIn top voice in, in mental health. Congratulations. Ago. And so I'm on there pretty actively as well. And my book is Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt and Succeed in Life. And I have a new book coming out in October called Your Unstoppable Greatness. It's about the second piece of working on your imposter syndrome. Oh my gosh. Cannot wait. I'm definitely going to link all of those resources in the episode show notes. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, It is so inspiring. And I hope folks that tune into this episode realize that there ain't no imposter syndrome, honey. You are where you are, not because of luck, not because, you know, somebody did you a favor, like you earned that shit. So let's own it. Yep. And work on owning it. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, Sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of The Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa.
On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.